Would you take your Bibles uh, this morning and open to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Our text this morning in verses 1 through 8, if you've picked up one of the red Bibles, Romans 4 begins on page 941. And I want to ask one more time if you're able, if you would stand so that we may honor once more the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, would you empower both the preaching of your word and the hearing and responding to your word this morning, we ask. For our good and the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Earlier uh, this spring, Wilfred McClay, who is the professor for uh, the history of liberty at Oklahoma University, wrote an intriguing essay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. In the article, he examined uh, the idea that Nietzsche had put forward. Nietzsche had argued that a culture that moves farther away from God and ultimately just casts off the idea of God altogether, not needing to appeal to God for anything, but a culture that would move away from God, cast off God, would actually find itself free from the idea of guilt. They wouldn't feel guilt. They wouldn't struggle with guilt anymore. And Nietzsche argued that it would be a regaining of innocence, like a, like a return to Eden, uh, if you will. The idea went something like this. The reason we feel guilt is because we think of God. And when we think of God, we think of commands that he's given, the decrees that he's made, rights versus wrongs, good versus evil. And when we begin to think in those categories, we all of a sudden recognize that we've done evil and consequently we feel guilt. So the idea then would be, get rid of God, pretend God doesn't exist, no need to think in terms of right or wrong anymore, no need to examine your life anymore to see if you've done anything that doesn't measure up to God's standard, and consequently, guilt is gone. Here's the problem. McClay notes, guilt simply has not gone away. Nietzsche's promise has not really found uh, itself to be answered. Or as McClay notes, we have a strange persistence of guilt. And this has produced a quandary in the West, uh, specifically. One of the things that, that McClay notes is that the reason this has produced a quandary 
is because when a people begin to overthrow all religious notions so that they would say of the Bible and the God of the Bible, we don't need you and just throw out all of this, then, then in your attempt to throw out all of these things, pretending God doesn't exist, you've also thrown out categories like forgiveness or atonement or redemption. And the reason that's a big problem is because when you get rid of forgiveness and you get rid of redemption and you get rid of atonement, but guilt persists, then you've got nothing to do with it. And you've again produced this great quandary. And so what ends up happening is because people have this strange persistence of guilt, they want to get rid of it and they're trying tirelessly to get rid of it. Everybody wants to get rid of it. Everybody wants to be justified. And yet, guilt is kind of like static cling in a pair of pants. The more you work to get rid of it, the more it just seems like it's building up more and more and more, right? So Beclay notes in this article, he says, Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never give enough to the poor or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. So the end result then is a society that knows sin and guilt very well, A society that desperately longs to be justified and is tirelessly scheming and working to figure out how they can achieve justification, how they can be deemed righteous with no success. Now, I would only add to McClay's article, which I think is incredibly insightful, I would only add this note. What McClay is describing as happening in the West in our present day is simply the history of all of mankind throughout all of the ages when they refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You see, because we have been made in God's image and because he put his law on our hearts, men know sin and men know guilt. And when you refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, consequently getting rid of the one thing that can deal with your guilt, the one person and work that can get rid of your sin, you're all of a sudden going to be left only with looking to yourself. And therefore, mankind, I think, is a picture of unsuccessfully trying to be justified, trying to get rid of their guilt over and over again. Now, sure, it manifests itself in different ways. Some people give free oxygen to the person at the nursing home or give money to the poor, and that's their way to try to be justified. Other people do suicide bombings and fly airplanes into buildings, and that's their way to try to be justified. But don't be deceived. All mankind, apart from bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, is in this tireless scheming of unsuccessfully trying to be justified. And what they're left with in their inability to do so. It's just a strange persistence of guilt. But the good news, the good news that we've seen thus far in the book of Romans is that though no man will be justified by his works because no man can do enough good, there is good news. And the good news is not that God has lessened the demand for perfect righteousness before anyone who would stand before him, but that he has provided the very righteousness we need, that he sent his son who as uh, one who took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died for our sins and was raised from the dead, has lived for us a perfectly righteous life so that if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness is actually credited to us as a gift counted for us that is available to everyone who will believe. 
That is the good news that we get to go to our neighbor and say, we can go to our neighbor who we know is lying awake at night with this strange persistence of sin, strange persistence of guilt, and say to them, I have a message whereby if you believe, you can live your life with no condemnation. You can live your life knowing that the God of the universe, whom you're trying to pretend doesn't exist, will actually forgive you and be pleased with you, and you can walk in acceptance before him. We get to announce to the world the good news that because of the work of, the Christ, because of, the work of Christ, you can be justified by faith alone, not by your works. But the question I want to ask this morning is, we say that, because we see that in Paul's writings right here in the book of Romans. But is Paul right? I mean, just step back and think of it for a second. If Paul's right, then surely, surely this isn't new in the Bible. That if Paul's right, that God's plan is to justify people not by their works according to the law, but by faith alone in the work of Christ alone, if that really is God's plan, then it must not be new here. It must also be something that the Old Testament spoke about. It cannot simply be the case that God somehow saved people in the Old Testament one way, and now Paul is announcing he's saving people in the New Testament another way, by faith alone. No, no it must be the case that if this is God's means of saving people by faith alone, then it must also be what the Old Testament taught, not simply what we're reading here in the book of Romans. And so that's the question that I want to ask and answer this morning is, does the Old Testament also teach us that we are justified by faith alone? And the reason I want to ask that question is because I think that's the very question that Paul's asking and answering in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, our text this morning. In our text this morning, Paul launches into looking at how Abraham was justified in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And then he dives into David and his remarks on justification, his remark on the one who is blessed in a relationship with God. And the reason most likely that Paul then launches into this look at Abraham, this look at David, and how the saints of the Old Testament were justified is because it was a consistent Jewish teaching from the rabbis at this time that Abraham's relationship with the Lord was based on works. Now, this might be hard to believe if we actually pay attention to the details of our Old Testament, but the Jewish teaching of the day was that Abraham was essentially a good man that he was morally upright, he did everything right, and consequently, because he lived well, because he fulfilled the commandments of God and was obedient to the T, therefore God justified him, and Abraham was justified by works. And Paul then, at this point, is wanting to go back to this and say, I'm not going to ignore your teaching. Let's look right at this issue. Let's look at Abraham. Let's look at, think through this logically. Let's look at what the text says. And let's look at the rest of the Old Testament as well, even, inclu- even including the testimony of David in Psalm 32. So this morning, I'll try to ask that question, does the Old Testament teach justification by faith? I want to answer it with two points. I will say this. The first of my two points is significantly longer than the other. If I don't say that, then by the time I get to the end of my first point, you guys are going to be panicking a bit. But the second one is going to be much shorter. So the first point is this. The Old Testament and the logic teach that Abraham was justified by faith. The Old Testament and logic teach that Abraham was justified by faith. Paul in verse 1 just just says, let's dive right into the question. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So Paul's saying, I know this is in your mind. You're thinking Abraham is justified according to works. Well, let's just look at it. What was gained by him? And here's his answer. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Paul's first answer is, let's think about this logically. If Abraham were justified on the basis of his works, that is, on the basis of the fact that he had done enough good, avoided enough bad, something like this, if Abraham was justified on the basis of his works, then Paul says, then it would stand to reason logically that Abraham has something to boast about before God. But, but Paul brings this up as to say, that is never a possibility. I think the way these first few verses work Paul's going to argue, uh, make a statement in verses 2 and 3, and then I think he expands on it in verse 4 and 5. So in some sense, the argument in verse 2 and 3 are expanded on in verse 4 and 5. So one of the things that can help us to explain, Paul, what do you mean Abraham would have something to boast about, or, or that this is somehow incomprehensible to you to have this category of Abraham boasting before God. One of the things that helps us is that Paul begins to explain it in verse 4. So skip verse 3 just for a second, and look down at verse 4, and here's what Paul writes. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, Paul argues, if Abraham had been justified on the basis of his works, on the basis of having done enough good, then his justification, when God declared Abraham righteous, it would not be God giving him a gift It would simply be God giving Abraham his due, that which Abraham had been, let me say it this way, that which God would be obligated to give to Abraham because he had met the standard. Let's illustrate this. Let's imagine for a second that I said to you, if you will go around our property and pick up every single leaf that is on the ground, I'll give you a thousand bucks. And so sure enough, one of you crazily runs out there and begins picking up leaves. And so we wait a while, and all of a sudden you run in, and you say, it's done. So, okay, fine. So, so we walk outside, and I begin looking around all over the property, all over the grass, the parking lot, everywhere. And sure enough, there is not a leaf to be found on the ground. Every one of them has been picked up. And I walked up to you, and I said, well, I'm really impressed. You picked up every leaf on the parking lot. I tell you what, I'm going to be gracious, and I'm going to give you a gift. Here's a thousand bucks. You would say gift schmift, right? You would say, that's, that's not a gift. That's not you being gracious. You set an exceptionally high standard. Pick up every leaf on our property. Have you seen the trees, right? I did it. You're not giving me a gift. You're not being gracious. You're giving me my due. I've earned it, and you're obligated to meet that. In fact, you might say to me, you are so obligated to do this that if you did not give me $1,000, then you would walk around in my debt. You owe me $1,000. Paul says, just think about that in relation to Abraham. If you're going to go down the route of thinking that Abraham was justified by works, then you're putting Abraham before God as if he has something to boast about. You're putting God in a position to Abraham as if he is obligated to him. You're putting God in Abraham's debt. God never relates that way to his creatures. He is always the one who is gracious. He is always the one who is giving. 
And so Paul says, first of all, just logic alone should tell us that Abraham was not justified by works because that would give him something to boast about. That would give uh, his justification to be not a gift, but something that he was due, something that he was earned, something that God was obligated to give to him. But Paul wants us to see, it's not just logic that tells us that Abraham was not justified by works. In fact, the text explicitly says he was justified by faith. Look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what Paul's quoting here from Genesis 15, 6 is the point in the book of Genesis where God has said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, give you a son, and through your son Isaac, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the text says that Abraham then walked outside and he looked at those stars in the sky and he believed God. And when he believed God, as he had faith, trusting in the promises of God, God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, that's what justification is. God declaring us righteous, or God counting to us righteousness, giving us a gift of righteousness to be credited to our account, something that we have not earned. What Paul is then saying is not only then does logic mean Abraham is justified by faith, but the text explicitly says it. But then just as verse 2, I said I think verse 4 kind of elaborates that a little bit, I think verse 5 gives us a bit of an elaboration of what's going on in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteous. And then in verse 5, Paul says this, in contrast to thinking about being justified by works, Paul writes in verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, Paul says, I've just laid out how the logic would work if Abraham had been justified on the basis of his works. It would put God in a place of obligation, Abraham beginning his due. Now I'm fleshing out to you for you what it looks like for Abraham to believe. What it looks like when Abraham believes and God credits him with righteousness are really three things. In verse 5, It means that Abraham was not working. I'm going to elaborate that on that in a second. It means that Abraham was not working, that Abraham was ungodly, and that righteousness was counted to him. Let me flesh that out. First of all, Paul says in verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes. What What Paul is saying rather at that point, he's not contrasting someone who says, I believe, and then doesn't do anything to obey the Lord. That's not what he's saying. When he says to the one who does not work but believes, he does not mean, he's not referring to someone who claims faith but then doesn't live in any way obedient to the Lord. That's not what he's saying. When he says to the one who does not work but believes, he's meaning to the one who does not rely on his works as the basis for his righteousness. That that we might say something like this, to the one who does not work in order to be righteous before God but merely believes in order to be righteous before God. This is what Paul is saying is true of Abraham. Abraham is a model, a picture, an example of one who did not work but believed. The text does not read God promised that he would bless Abraham with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and Abraham walked outside, looked up at the sky, and all of a sudden obeyed all of God's commands and was justified. No, 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 no. Abraham wasn't relying on his works. He simply believed. Second, note that Paul then, in explaining this, writes, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. 
That is, at this very point, Paul is not afraid to put Abraham in the category of ungodly. Why? Simply because that's the category for everybody who is not able to do enough righteous deeds to be right before God. And that's all of us. Now, if you want to get specific, when God called Abraham to himself, according to Joshua 24, verse 2, it says that God went to the family of Abraham, and he called Abraham out of a family that, quote, served other gods. Abraham was an idol worshiper. Abraham was a lover of false gods, and God justified him, not on the basis of, well, you didn't really seek after false gods. No, he really did. He justified him on the basis of faith. Abraham is an example of one who does not work, does not rely on his works, merely on faith, and is justified, though he is ungodly. And then finally, Paul ends verse 5 saying, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, again, note the word counted. It does not say anything about meriting this righteous judgment or earning this righteous judgment, but rather that he was counted righteous. And when someone is counted righteous, the idea is that something is counted to them, credited to them, that is not theirs. Something that has to come from another place to them, from another person to them. This is who Abraham was. He's justified by faith, not by his works. He has no ability to measure up to God on his own. He's ungodly. And as he believed God, God counted it to him as righteousness. That's what Genesis 15, 6 says. Consequently then, at this point in the argument, if you're an unbelieving Jew reading this, Paul kind of has you here, right? Logic alone shows us Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. The text explicitly teaches that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. But if you, and now let me move away from the unbelieving Jew for a second. Let me just talk to you in the pew. If you hear this, you may be thinking, ah, but there's something else I have a problem with. Especially if you're really knowledgeable of the rest of the New Testament. You may be thinking, what in the world do we do with what James then says? Now, if you're not familiar with the rest of the New Testament, I fear that you're going to go home this afternoon and open up your Bible and read in the book of James and read something and go, "Uh uh-oh, that seems to be the opposite of what Lee just preached. So let me go ahead and just address it, because I feel like this is the elephant in the room. If you want to turn to James, let me read what James writes to you in James chapter 2. Now, we're going to come back to Romans 4. Rarely would I leave our text and go and, and look at another text in depth, but I want to do it a little bit here just because it sounds like James says precisely the opposite of what Paul just said. And I don't know, maybe it's a good rule that if you read something in the Bible that says something that sounds like the opposite, right, you dive into it. So I want to do this publicly. James chapter 2, verse 21. It starts on page 1012 in the Red Bible. All right, James chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Now, you're going to hear so much of the same kind of language, a reference to Genesis 15, 6, quoting it. So all of it's going to sound so much the same, only it sounds exactly the opposite, right? So James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, and now James is going to quote Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So then note verse 24, James' conclusion. 
you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That seems to be a problem, right? Okay. So what do you do with that? First of all, let's just ask a question. Have we misunderstood Paul? I mean, maybe somebody sitting there going, you know, maybe Paul doesn't, when he says that we're justified by faith, maybe he doesn't mean apart from works of the law. But brothers and sisters, he says it over and over and over again in the book of Romans. And if it's not enough that he says it in the book of Romans, I want to read to you. Here's Galatians 2.16. Just listen to this word. If you're an English major, this, this is probably a sentence that your English teacher would say, don't write like that. That's so repetitive and redundant. And says the same thing over and over again. Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul to the Galatians, and I would argue part of the Romans as well, but he's so passionate not only to make clear that they understand you're justified by faith, but equally clear you're not justified by the works of the law. That's to say Paul understands the only way you can get a people to believe that you're justified by faith alone is if you also keep emphasizing you're not justified by works. To be justified by faith alone means not to be justified according to works. So, first of all, I think we've understood Paul rightly. All right, well then what do we do with James? Who says that you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, one key that will really help us in understanding uh, James' argument is to understand that he uses the word justified a bit differently than Paul does. Now, this is common among biblical authors. You read the book of Peter, and he uses the word milk in a way different than the author of Hebrews does. Or you read Paul, and he uses the word call or called much differently than Matthew does. So this is not uncommon that you would find uh, one word being used different ways. When Paul talks about being justified, he means declared righteous in our standing before God. When James uses the word justified, he means something more like to vindicate in judgment. Something like to prove something to be true or to show it to be genuine. It has this horizontal element of showing something, of proving something. This is a vindication before others. This is why James will say something like, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works, right? He's, it's, I, let me vindicate my claim to faith. You, you try to justify or vindicate your claim to faith without works, I'm going to justify or vindicate my claim to faith without works. So here's what's going on then in James' argument. James also quotes Genesis 15, 6. God tells Abraham, you're going to have descendants. He walks out, he looks at the stars, he believes God, God counts it to him as righteousness. But then James takes us a little farther in our Bibles, and he says, you know what comes next? Genesis 22. And what happened in Genesis 22 is that God came to Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill him. And you know what Abraham did? He did not say, God, this is my promised son that you gave me when I was 100 years old and my wife, Sarah, was 90 This is my only miraculously born son. There's no way on earth I would ever do that. You know what he did? 
That would sound reasonable, right? Do you know what he did? He took his son. Took him on a journey to kill him. Why? Is Genesis 22 proof that Abraham is just crazy? Nope. James' argument is Genesis 22 is proof that Abraham really had faith. Why? Well, think of it this way. What if God told you you're never going to be physically harmed a day in your life and you really believed God? And then God told you, I want you to drive your car off the Grand Canyon. Well, if you really believed God, you'd feel comfortable driving that car off the canyon, wouldn't you? In fact, on your way, driving your car toward the edge of that canyon, you'd probably be thinking to yourself something like this. I wonder what in the world God's going to do to keep me from being physically harmed. Because I'm driving fast. That canyon is deep, right? You may be thinking to yourself, huh, I wonder if he's going to make the car levitate. Right? I, I don't know, but, but he's got to do something. Because I believe what he promised me. I will never suffer physical harm a day in my life. He just told me to drive the car off the canyon. Somehow, I'm going to drive the car off the canyon, and I'm not going to be physically harmed. Abraham, interestingly, thought something exactly that way. Abraham said to himself, God promised that my descendants, through Isaac, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I believe him. Abraham really had faith. And so Abraham reasoned, if that's true, then what's God going to do so that Abraham lives, even though I'm off to kill him? The reason we know that's the case is because in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, the author of Hebrews writes, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named... Listen to the next sentence. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So when Abraham was on his way, taking Isaac to be sacrificed, he was reasoning the same way you would, driving 70 toward the edge of that canyon. I wonder what God's going to do, because his promises are true. And God promised Abraham that that through Isaac, he would have multitudes and multitudes of descendants. So Abraham began thinking to himself, you know what? I guess God will just raise him from the dead. All right, here we go, right? And James' point is that when Abraham went to the step of that work, went to that step of being willing to kill his own son, what it did was it vindicated, it justified Abraham's faith. It's like it was a completion of his faith or fulfillment of his faith. What James wants us to see is that merely saying you have faith doesn't prove faith. Yes, James is not arguing against being justified by faith alone. James would say with Paul, amen, we're justified by faith alone. And you know what? That faith alone that justifies, James would say, is a faith that actually ends up transforming one to the degree that they live in obedience to Christ. What the New Testament wants us to see is, yes, we're justified by faith alone, but that saving faith never comes alone. This is the reason why at Cornerstone we can passionately preach and sing and believe that we're justified by faith alone. And yet, we have no problem saying to someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ and yet is living a life contrary to God's word, 
we have no problem saying to them, I have reason to question your faith. That's not us saying you're not justified by faith alone. You are. But what we're saying is the lack of obedience in your life, the unwillingness to repent of sin in your life leads us to question whether or not you have saving faith because that's what saving faith looks like. So the first answer then to our question is the Old Testament teach that Abraham was, was teach that you were justified by faith is yes, Abraham's a model, a picture, an example of being justified by faith alone. Logic itself teaches Abraham was justified by faith alone. The scripture explicitly says that Abraham was justified by faith alone. Abraham was justified by faith alone. But Abraham in Genesis 15 is not the only text that Paul wants to point us to. Point two, David also testifies that God justifies apart from works. David also testifies that God justifies apart from works. Paul continues in his argument in Romans chapter 4 verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. That is, now Paul's about to quote from Psalm 32, Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2. But but before he dives into that, just note what Paul's saying here, verse 6. He's saying, David, when he wrote Psalm 32, he spoke of a blessing that comes to the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That is to say, David is giving us a picture of the full blessing that comes to an individual who's justified by faith alone. Maybe we could say it this way. What does it mean to be justified by faith alone? We've seen that God counts righteousness that's not your own to you. But Paul says, yeah, but that's not just it. It's actually more than that. There's a a fuller blessing that comes. And David speaks of the other part of that. And so here's what he quotes from Psalm 32 in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, clearly, when David then, if Paul's right, and David's talking about one who's been declared righteous, one who's been justified before God, he's clearly not talking about someone who's perfectly obeyed God's commands and therefore could be justified by his works. Because David actually talks about this individual as one who has lawless deeds, who has sins, But what David wants us to know about the person who's justified is that his lawless deeds are forgiven. His sins are covered. He is one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What what is Paul getting at here? What Paul is getting at is this. We have a really big problem before we're justified. And our problem really can be thought of in two ways. On the one hand... We have not obeyed the Lord perfectly. We lack righteousness. The good news we've seen so far and the good news that Abraham shows us is through Christ, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ actually lived a perfect life and attained the righteousness that we don't have. So as we believe that gift of righteousness that is Jesus Christ, it's actually counted to us. It's credited. So in the category of we need righteousness, Jesus Christ provides it. It's counted to us as a gift by faith. But there's another problem. If we could get that 
counted to us. My other problem is, well, not only did I lack righteousness, but I actually have a bunch of unrighteousness. So not only do I lack doing good, I actually have done bad. It's not as if I've kind of just walked along in neutral my whole life. No, 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 no. I have sinned in amazing ways. I have rebelled against God. You have rebelled against God. Paul will argue earlier in this book, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have turned astray, Isaiah says. So not only then do I need righteousness given to me, but I need something done with my unrighteousness. And Paul says, this is the fullness of the blessing I want you to understand. Two things are happening when you're justified by faith. Not only does God count righteousness to you, but he actually does not count your sins to you. There's a counting and a not counting. And both of those things are absolutely necessary. And both of those things are an amazing blessing. So let's think of not counting. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if your faith is resting in Jesus Christ, you can think of all your sin that you've ever done, maybe the sin that you've done this week. And maybe it's so disgusting and so bothersome that you would rather not a soul on the face of the earth ever know about it. And here's the blessing of justification by faith. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, not relying on our works, but trusting in Jesus Christ alone, God says of that sin, I'm not counting that toward you. I'm, in his words of Psalm 32, your lawless deeds are forgiven, your sins are covered, this doesn't count against you. But that doesn't mean that we merely get our sins not counted. In addition, Christ's perfect righteousness is counted. We might say it this way. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness credited and God counted him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that our sins might be paid for and our sins not counted. All of this happens through the work of Christ. And so here's what I want for you. Here's, here's the punchline pastorally. Here's the application that really moves my heart this morning. This has been my prayer. God, as we preach this, justification by faith alone, it may be that we learn something. It may be that we're just minded to something. But here's what I want for you. What I want for us as a congregation is I want us to rest in the blessing that Paul is outlining here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to walk around in the freedom from condemnation that is yours by faith in Christ. I want you to pursue obedience because you are already justified. I want you to pursue obedience because you know that there is no guilt bearing down on you for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to pursue obedience out of a heart that is free from condemnation, knows you're accepted by God, and therefore wants to obey Him. You know what we do? If we sin and we try to respond to that sin by turning around and doing better, if that's our pattern of life, I've sinned. I need to do better. I've sinned. I'm going to pursue obedience. If we respond that way, we're responding no differently than the history of mankind who's refused to bow the knee to Jesus. 
You will have a strange persistence of guilt, and you'll be working and working and working, and it will be like static clinging in your pants. No matter what you do, you can't get rid of it. Brothers and sisters, don't try to deal with your sin by running toward obedience because you can't obey enough. You deal with your sin by turning and looking again at the cross. You deal with your sin by saying, Lord, I've sinned. Confess it, right? Jesus expects this. Remember Matthew, he taught us to pray. When you pray, say. One of the things he said is, forgive us our trespasses. It's not surprising to Jesus that we have sin to deal with in our lives. He says, when you pray, include this one. Forgive us our sins. Or you can say in 1 John 19, 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. Forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So here's, when you sin, turn, Lord, I confess my sin. And I'm not pursuing, trying to do good to answer my sin. You've answered my sin. That's why Jesus died. You're not counting my sin against me because he paid for it. And you're crediting me with righteousness. And then, from that place of freedom and from that place of joy, then pursue obedience. The only way to find lasting obedience in our lives is not to pursue obedience by running from condemnation, to pursue obedience by running with the cross at your back, knowing that your sins have been dealt with and you're justified by faith in Christ. I've said before, but I'll say it again. I think one of the greatest calls... One of the greatest causes for us as believers to walk around um, really not experiencing, I think, the joy that God intends for us is that we walk around forgetting that we're justified by faith alone. And we're continually yoking ourselves again to a law that says, do, 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 and maybe you'll earn your salvation. Brothers and sisters, as we've said, Faith does not say do, it says it has already been done. And we're trusting that Christ is enough. And because of that, we're walking in obedience to him. And so this morning, we're going to take a moment of silence as we come to the table as we do every week. In that moment of silence, it has practical purposes, right? One of the reasons we just pause that moment of silence is because somehow the band's got to get on stage. Somehow the ushers got to get up front. But it is also a great benefit to us who have heard the word of God preached. Because in that moment of silence, we can just pause and maybe we want to pray something like this. Lord, would you take the glorious good word, the blessing that is mine, and just root that in my heart. Because I want to live my life in obedience to you, delighting in the fact that there's no condemnation. Delighting in the fact that Christ's righteousness has been credited to me. So maybe we want to use this time to pray that prayer. Then... The ushers are going to distribute the bread. They're going to distribute the cup. And as they distribute it, we're going to collectively, corporately sing of the amazing grace of God so that we might get that, that word just deeper in our hearts. Then we're going to eat the bread together. And then we're going to drink from the cup together. Why? Because it gets this reality that through repentance and faith, our sins are forgiven, righteousness is credited to us because the one who came and lived gave his body and shed his blood. And then we're going to sing a song of praise to the Lord. So let's now uh, take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table.